In every season of Family in Business, we bring you an encore episode with a guest whose family enterprise story serves as a capstone to the entire season's theme. And since the theme for season two is purpose, we have invited a second-generation leader, Anderson Tenoto, whose purpose is sustainability. Hi, my name is Esther Choi, the executive producer and your host of the John L. Ward Center for Family Enterprises' own podcast series, Family in Business, a podcast that features stories of leaders, their families, and the family enterprises they transformed. Given the timeliness of the topic sustainability in Season 2's Encore episode, we thought you would really appreciate hearing a recorded interview with Anderson as he walks us through the many challenges of bringing scalable sustainability to his family business, Royal Golden Eagle and on things like why palm oil is actually good for the environment. My name is uh, Anderson Tenoto. I'm a managing director in RGE or Royal Golden Eagle. We're a second generation family business. Uh, My father, Mr. Sukanto Tenoto was the founder, right about 54 years ago, actually in 1967. So uh, we're celebrating our 55 years this year. And we are actually predominantly in three main businesses. Uh, The first line of business, we call it anything to do with fiber. So eucalyptus and acacia trees. We plant plantations uh, to make cellulose pulp, to make paper, tissue, paperboard packaging. We also use the same cellulose to make a viscose rayon for textiles. So this is a cellulosic fiber for uh, sustainable clothing and sustainable textiles. That's one side of our business. The second part of our business is agriculture. We are we plant uh, palm oil trees to make uh, edible oil, biodiesel, cooking oil, cocoa butter substitute, etc. And then the last line of business is actually our energy business. Um, so we're focusing predominantly on uh, gas. So we have a LNG uh, receiving terminal in China and a few gas power plants, as well as um, a gas operating asset in Canada. So that's our three main lines of businesses in terms of our direct business. Yeah, and I play the largest role mostly in the in the fiber business side. So anything to do with eucalyptus and acacia trees. Okay, great. Thank you for that introduction. Given the three distinct line of business that your family enterprise is in, can you just give us a view of the journey of how did your family enterprise come to sustainability? It's interesting because the topic of sustainability has taken its own evolution in the last, I think, especially in the last 10, 15 years. What was sustainable in the 80s and 90s may not necessarily be sustainable anymore in the 2000s. And it's evolving. So uh, the journey for us has always been sustainability in terms of the business sense. And a lot of times, actually, when you weave in business sustainability, it actually falls back also to environmental sustainability. Because when you are sustainable for the environment, it's actually good for the business as well. Uh, many people think that when uh, business versus the environment, and that if you uh, harm the environment, it's actually more profitable. Perhaps in a short-term basis, it is. But for a medium to long-term perspective, it's not. And this is how we approached our business. And this is why we started uh, with the renewable plantations. 
Our family back in the 60s and 70s was in the plywood logging business. But we start realizing that's not sustainable because if you log trees without replanting them, you cannot have a renewable industry. I mean, uh, eventually it will be finished. And that's how we started focusing on uh, a lot of the plantation business where we're actually planting trees. And the exciting part of what we do is everyone asks me, what is, what is your raw material? Uh, I always say our raw material is actually carbon dioxide, a little sunshine, water. We trap the carbon molecules and then release oxygen. And these carbon molecules are actually what makes cellulose pulp that we produce for various products. So going back to, you used to be in logging, but soon realized that the rate of logging is a lot faster than how long it takes to plant trees. Was it a gradual process for your family to realize that sustainability is an important part of business? Was, was there any one in particular person that helped you guys along on that journey? I came back to the family business, actually, 2013. That was a big driver of the transition to a much more sustainable business. Uh, but beyond that also, it's to go above and beyond what we, we call just compliance. I always share with many of my friends and a lot of stakeholders that I speak in in, term, in terms of conferences. I'm probably one of the youngest, typically when I speak in most of the conferences about sustainability. And uh, if anyone should be worried about the environment or climate change, I should be the most worried because I'll, we'll, I'll bear the brunt of climate change uh, in the next 70, 80 years ahead of us. So in that sense, coming from my perspective is if you're looking at it from medium to long-term perspective, if you harm the environment, it's going to result in greater climate change. And greater climate change is going to result in unlivable cities, unlivable environments. And uh, the younger generations, my generation, would bear the brunt of it. So from that perspective... Uh, as I came back to the family business eight years ago, nine years ago, it was a transformational process. The first two or three years really is to align the business to make sure that you don't only talk about sustainability or commit to something, but not actually do it. Uh, really aligning the business and streamlining our business to make sure that whatever we say, that we commit externally, we're actually implementing it. And also changing the conversation between business versus sustainability, but rather a win-win situation. For example, uh, one of the examples I have in 2015, actually, in COP21, uh, which is the conference of the parties, COP21 was in Paris in 2015. We were the first company in the world to actually commit something called one for one. So every hectare of plantation we have, we would like to have one hectare of conservation and restoration. This is way before uh, everyone was talking about restoration and restoring the forest. Because I felt that actually we have every reason that to restore and protect the forest because these are within the same landscapes where we operate. Um, so through that process, we were able to conserve about 400,000 hectares of uh, natural forest. Just to give you the scale of 400,000 hectares, that is uh, seven times the size of Singapore. So it is a very large area. And in that process, we were able to protect natural virgin forest and uh, also the biodiversity behind it. And of course, in 2021, 2022, it has paid off because... We went ahead with something called a VCU process. We call it a verified carbon unit process. And uh, it is now the largest carbon project uh, registered on Vera, uh, which is the, a carbon exchange, uh, 7 million tons of avoided emissions on an annual basis. My point being is I think uh, companies can uh, benefit from being more and more sustainable. Companies can also 
capitalize on a lot of the carbon credits that are coming up, uh, moving ahead. Uh, I think gone are the days when people are saying absolutely zero emissions. What we need to do is reduce emissions and then we call it net zero. So there needs to be offsets uh, that's happening uh, globally. And a lot of these carbon units or verified carbon units are effectively a great way for to offset uh, carbon as well. ESG back then wasn't such a hot topic like it is now. But I wanted to see if you can kind of help us bring back the fog a bit at the time when you didn't know you didn't what you didn't know. Maybe one thing at a time was now that it's successful, it's easy to say, well, that was the right thing to do all along. But when you were pushing for this, what major obstacles might you have faced? Because really, anytime you're trying to push for new initiatives, new change of the scale, I would think that you have to have, have encountered some obstacles. Absolutely. I think... Two or three aspects. First is that people think when you are a sustainable, when you try to position yourself as a sustainable company, then you'll not get criticized. Actually, that's not true. The more you put yourself out there to be pledging on sustainability, the more you'll be criticized because you are putting yourself out there. Uh, I wouldn't say criticized, but scrutinized. This is one of the interesting challenges that we've had in the last uh, seven, eight years is when you're pushing the boundaries of sustainability, you're taking risks. And uh, taking risks means you're putting yourself up for scrutiny. But what I also soon realized that putting yourself up for scrutiny, it's, it's healthy. There's no replacement for transparency, monitoring, reporting, and verification. And in some sense, companies build their credibility by doing that. When you share success stories, but also share failure stories, things that did not work in terms of sustainability projects, it gives a very humbling and very real uh, story of, of the sustainability journey. And companies that only, quote unquote, greenwash and only tell the positive stories of sustainability are the ones who are typically not doing very much. Those who try and do a lot of sustainability initiatives, uh, maybe two out of three projects succeed, but one out of three projects, 30% of the projects may fail. And a lot of the failures of the sustainability projects are also something to, to learn from. I would like to give an example, for example, um, fire. I mean, there's a lot of challenges and issues uh, about fire and haze, for example, in Indonesia. Preliminarily, we, we wanted to do rapid suppression to stop the fires from, from spreading. So we actually uh, expanded our fire suppression capability. Uh, we end up buying a number of uh, aerial assets or helicopters to suppress the fire in a rapid manner. And I start realizing that actually, this is not the way to solve the fire problem in Indonesia. Because in Indonesia, the Humidity level is actually 98, 99%. It's very, very humid. So there's no self-combusting fire, unlike in California or in, in, in some parts of southern part of Africa. So a lot of the fires were man-made, either from agricultural clearing, uh, but they couldn't control the fires, or man-made incidences. So we've changed our model tremendously after a few years. Instead of suppression, we talk about prevention. It's much lower cost to prevent the fires from starting than to suppress it. So a big part of our sustainability project at that point of time converted to become fire prevention, which is a community engagement process to actually educate uh, the community in our surroundings to prevent fires from, from starting in the first place, giving them incentives, alternatives uh, to set up agricultural land, and actually setting up a fire uh, community 
centers actually in each of the village. So each village actually had many capabilities to suppress their own fire in the grassroots way. Uh, and that worked out exceptionally well. I think uh, in the villages that we engaged, the fire rate dropped uh, 96% tremendously. And, and in the villages that we have not engaged with, actually the fires were still there. So very real, very pragmatic approach of fire prevention, but it paid off because the emissions that you get from fire on forest land is is immense. I mean, you talk about emissions of burning coal for power plants. If you have forest fires, it's actually even worse. So um, it is something that is good for the environment. It's good for the health of the people that live around us. And ultimately, it gives the people on the ground alternative for agricultural clearing as well. Yeah. So besides putting yourself out, out there, wanting to own a piece, a role in sustainability, but that invites a lot more scrutiny. Were there any other major challenge that you remember once you want to put your stake in the ground that this is the path that you're going? I think it's also bringing the external stakeholders together with you because sustainability is aligning internal uh, your organization, but also uh, there are a lot of external stakeholders you have to engage, whether it's NGOs, uh, governments, uh, policymakers. That has been challenging because uh, we operate in countries like Indonesia, uh, Brazil, China, emerging countries, whereby there's certain things that we do, not only abiding by local requirements, but also international standards. And at times, uh, the government regulators actually don't really understand why we're doing certain things. I mean, for example, our conservation and restoration area, these are actually production concessions that we decide not to produce from. <laughs> we actually turned them to a restoration license. And uh, the government was not understanding why we're doing such things because they're thinking it should be developed for economic development. And that is part and parcel of the reason why the concession was given in the first place. So what I realized is that there are different levels of understanding uh, and different levels of evolution for sustainability, especially as you open up the stakeholders to external stakeholders. Uh, there are various expectations and, and the level of understanding of sustainability continues to vary, especially in the different countries we operate in. People have different evolutions of understanding of the interplay between economic development and sustainability. And since you guys operate in so many different countries, how do you coordinate a sense of leveling of understanding? Because it's the same business, but operating in different countries. It has to be done in a coordinated manner because uh, our sustainability framework, a group-wide, applies to all countries wherever we operate in. In certain countries, you have tailwind, meaning the government supporting you to do such things. In certain countries, you have headwind, where the government doesn't understand why you're doing it and maybe creating more challenges and issues as you go on the sustainability journey. But we look at it from a holistic basis. Our sustainability framework and commitments are not different in different countries. They're actually centralized. And for example, our emissions reduction program, it is top-down uh, from the group-wide, and then each of the emissions reduction programs that should be implemented at the various countries and the various operations we have. Okay. In trying to prepare for this conversation with you, my husband came across this book. It's a 
dictionary of a book. I don't know if you've seen it by Mark Carney, Values. Values. Here, at least in the U.S., uh, people regard this as the Bible of uh, ESG sustainability. And then I have a quote in there that I love, and for, for this purpose especially, is that sustainability is the precondition to solving climate crisis. Do you have climate in mind as you pursue this path closely, or is this something that something that you think about in terms of a balancing of an ecosystem? Sorry for tagging along with that. This is the list of UN's sustainable development goals. There are 17 of them. How do you prioritize which one matters or most important to you guys? Love the two questions. Um, if you look at the biggest agenda in the last few years since COP21 in Paris has been emissions reduction. Emissions reduction is about not releasing greenhouse gas emissions to the atmosphere that results in the warming of climate. So in some sense, it is about reduction of emissions, whether it's carbon dioxide or methane or various other greenhouse gas emissions. So it is predominantly driven by the climate conversation because the climate change potential, if it's one and a half degrees or two degrees or two and a half degrees of temperature rising, uh, there's a lot of catastrophic effects that can follow suit after that. However, um, there's also a second track discussion on biodiversity as well, because people start realizing that if you're purely speaking about reduction of emissions, it's all about reducing uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And hence, it's not really about nature, perhaps. But there's two tracks of conversation, which is biodiversity and nature, as well as uh, climate change, which is redu reducing in, in greenhouse gas emissions. I personally believe the first agenda on greenhouse gas emissions reduction is the most important agenda, because this is probably the most real and something that we'll face tremendously in the next 50, 60 years ahead of us. But of course, nature is as important because once you lose nature, you cannot gain it back. And um, in that sense, countries where we operated, especially in Indonesia, in Brazil, where biodiversity and nature is very, very rich, there's, of course, more potential for countries like us to contribute. On the point on greenhouse gas emissions, I find it very fascinating because the biggest challenge that we have is how do you have equitable reduction of emissions? Uh, if you look at the total cumulative emissions globally, countries that have industrialized first has the, emitted the most. <laughs> uh, this is post-industrial revolution that is Western Europe, including United States and North America. While countries that are now developing in this decade or this century may be emitting higher on an annual basis now, but cumulatively, they've not emitted as much. <laughs> so to me, the biggest challenge on the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions is how do you do this equitably? That is a very interesting challenge that we have. I was actually in Glasgow and for COP26 as well. And there was a diplomat that spoke, and I remember this very distinctly. Climate change, it's like we're entering, we know there's a storm ahead of us. This is, is an incredible storm. And we're in the ocean. And uh, all of us see the storm ahead of us and a very catastrophic storm. However, everyone's on a different boat with a different captain, with different passengers in them, symbolizing some of the countries. Because each of the countries have different captains and, and each of them have different priorities. So how do you then tackle this storm ahead of us uh, while we're all in different boats? And this is how 
all the countries have come have to come together and work on it jointly. The climate change issue cannot be resolved by one single country or even only by the developed countries. It has to be uh, coordinated across both developed countries and developing countries, and it has to be done fairly and equitably. And I think that's the biggest challenge for us. On your point on SDGs, uh, 17 SDGs, uh, I've studied this very closely. As a matter of fact, our foundation, Tanato Foundation, actually uh, collaborated with United Nations Development Program, UNDP, uh, to set up an SDG Academy actually in Indonesia. So the SDG Academy is funded by our foundation in Indonesia. And as you rightly say so, uh, how do you prioritize uh, your SDGs? So we've done that exercise actually in 2015, prioritizing our SDGs. Basically, we pick specific goals that have direct impact with our business. And then, and then there are certain goals that are actually more uh, catalytic, meaning we, we can invest in it and we can have impact. I think SDGs is a great framework to have comprehensive approach on sustainability. What it allows you to do is to, to actually measure the progress that you've done in a very quantifiable manner. So the 17 SDGs actually have various KPIs under them. It makes you set targets as a company as an organization. I really like the SDG concept. Uh, sustainable development goals is KPI driven and whatever you can measure, then you can manage. Of course, this is a saying that everyone knows and it is important for sustainability to be measurable and, and therefore it can be manageable. If not, it is just a slogan and a lot of taglines that people speak about on sustainability, but it is difficult to measure and then therefore difficult to manage. So I think actually more companies should adopt the SDG framework, uh, more organizations should adopt SDG framework and measuring ourselves by some of the SDG standards. Yeah. I really like that analogy that you share at the COP26. And if I may extend that even further, I would say, yes, catastrophic storm, everybody's in the ocean, different boat, different captain, different passengers. And maybe because I've lived in this country for so long that I think people have different agreement on the severity of the storm and therefore what should be done about, if anything should be done about it. I think that's the inherent challenge in this whole conversation is that, well, how bad is it? Is it really bad? Is it even a thing? And so you're co-business owner and you have personal stake in this versus the masses, the general populations have very different understanding, different read on the storm. So this is the one that I hope you don't mind me asking you to help me as well as our listeners and the general public clarified is that palm oil, the general understanding widely circulated was that wasn't palm oil bad for the environment? But you're in this business as well, part of your business. So how does that work? Palm oil is not bad for the environment, but the people planting palm oil can harm the environment, right? The problem with palm oil is that it is a very lucrative crop. And the bad actors uh, in the plantation business are converting natural forests or deforesting to plant palm oil. That is bad. <laughs> The palm oil crop itself is actually not bad because if you th think about it, perfect example, uh, you have soybean, 
which is a, a form of edible oil, or you have palm oil. A hectare of land, uh, one hectare is about two and a half acres of land, can produce about one to 1.2 tons of oil if it's planted with soybean. If it's planted with palm oil, it can produce six to seven tons of oil. So in terms of land use efficiency, palm oil is far more efficient for oil production compared to any other edible crops there. For example, if we need to consume 100 million tons of edible oil annual basis, if you only use soybean, you need 100 million hectares, right? But if you use uh, palm oil, you actually only need 12 or 15 million hectares. Uh, so in terms of land use efficiency, palm oil is very sustainable. But how then do you go about planting it sustainably? You should not be deforesting, converting natural forest uh, to plant palm oil because that is bad. You should not be converting natural forest that will destroy the animal habitats to plant palm oil. Agriculture should be planted in degraded land, land that is already degraded or zoned for agricultural use. So I think that's the key for sustainable production of palm oil. And there's a lot of certification standards now that try to also categorize or separate what is quote-unquote dirty palm oil versus quote-unquote greener and more sustainable palm oil. So hopefully as we move ahead, there can be better understanding of uh, what palm oil is and how it can be grown sustainably and how it can be less linked uh, to deforestation. And I think that is the biggest challenge for us. So it's not the plant or the thing or the tool itself. It's, it's the people. How people, how they used it. It's like Correct. fire can do great. Fire is a huge thing in evolutions and human development, but fire can also kill and destroy. That's it. So I want to guide it back to talking about your family. You said when you came back to the business in 2013, you really championed that sustainability. How did you get bit by the bug of sustainability? It started with spending time on the ground and seeing what we did and seeing there's so much potential on sustainability. Because what's funny is we're not in fossil-based business. We are not in coal, we're not in oil drilling, we're not in mining business. So inherently, our business is actually renewable and sustainable because we plant trees, we harvest them, we plant them, we harvest them, we plant them, we harvest them. So then I realized, actually, we have so much potential, but why are we not using our potential? There's so much we can do in terms of forest conservation. Why are we not going above and beyond just managing plantations? Because the same resources that's, be, that's used for managing plantations can be also used to manage natural forests and conservation. So for me, the biggest uh, desire was that there was so much potential, yet our potential was not met. And that's when I start realizing, you know what? We should be leaders in sustainability. We should take more risky commitments to actually make sure that we achieve them. We should be above and beyond what compliance requires us to do, but really be industry leaders. Uh, and that's when I start pushing. And, and I realized that uh, it's good because not only for external stakeholders and parties, also for internal stakeholders. We were much more engaged as an organization. People were proud to work with us as a company. What is the difference between a good company and a great company, right? A good company is a company that's running its business successfully and people work, etc. 
But a great company is led by a purpose that all its employees believe it's doing, right? And I think in some sense on the sustainability front, it has to be driven and led by by our purpose uh, because it engages your employee much better and people will stay with the company beyond just the regular compensation benefits. They feel proud to be working for the company. Yeah. Do you have a purpose statement? Yeah, our purpose is actually quite straightforward. It's improving lives and developing resources sustainably. Why we say we are improving lives? We are making products that on, on a basic perspective, we're producing tissue, packaging board, affordable, sustainable textile, effectively catering for countries with larger population and really improving their lives and their lifestyle and their quality of life. It's very typical, for example, even tissue. <laughs> in, in developing countries, people don't use tissue as much because typically the living standards are still lower. But as they develop, as in terms of living standards going up, tissue consumption typically goes up as well and it's much more hygienic. You spread less diseases, etc. So that's a good example of what we, we actually do. Yeah, yeah. I found this. I want to share this by uh, with you. It's uh, my mother's high school yearbook. Wow. <laughs> Where is that? In Indonesia in uh, 1958. Wow. And uh, this is one of the more well-known um, Chinese-Indonesian uh, school in Jakarta, Bajong. Wow. Uh, yeah. Very yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. So I remember last time it, when I look at this, it made me thought about your parents. Very cool. It sounds like they might be about 10 years younger than mine. And uh, I remember last time you told me a little bit about your dad and how he started his business. I wonder if you could just quickly retell that story. It was very inspiring. Sure. Um, my grandparents, on my father's side, was from Fujian province uh, in Putian, in the southern part of China. In 1949, they decided to jump on the boat and uh, sail south. And they were not really sure where they will arrive. <laughs> uh, you, because when you take the boat, you're not sure where it will go. My grandmother landed in a, in a port town called Balawan. It's about two hours away from Medan, which is a, a large city in Sumatra, and gave birth to my father. Uh, in 1949. So my father is the eldest of seven brothers, uh, first-generation Indonesian, and grew up from there. So he was in high school, but did not finish graduate high school at that point in time. Not because he, he couldn't finish high school, but the school was closed, actually. In 1960s, there was a, call it communist scare. Basically, my father was attending a Chinese school, very similar to the one that I think uh, your parents attended as well. In the 1960s, all the schools were shut because uh, there was a movement against communism uh, in the Southeast Asia. So when his school closed, he had nowhere to go, so he started working. So he started working at 17 years old in a, in a gas station and worked his way up. <laughs> um, he first opened up a spare parts store to supply various companies uh, and then gained larger contracts to supply equipment for uh, a state-owned oil company called Pertamina, which is one of the largest state-owned companies in Indonesia that does oil and gas, and worked his way up from a small spare parts shop 
to now having uh, over 60,000 employees, $25 billion in assets and operating in Indonesia, China, Brazil, Canada, and, and various other countries. So uh, self-made man. <laughs> I wish I could show a picture. I, I would have had it ready, but yeah, really he came from nowhere. And one thing I, I realized what makes him so successful this year is 73, is that his desire and thirst to learn. Even at 73, he loves to learn. He loves to read. And everyone's talked about lifelong learning. But to me, he's the embodiment of what lifelong learning is. And he told me one thing, which is fascinating. He said, knowledge, back in the days, knowledge was, was like a, an asset that doesn't depreciate very quickly. It took 20 years for your knowledge to be irrelevant, right? I mean, if you know something, the knowledge that you know uh, would stay relevant for 20, 30 years. That was back in the days. But now... Knowledge depreciates faster than even a vehicle or a car. You know? uh, the moment you know something, if you stop learning, uh, the knowledge is actually going to depreciate every year. Um, so in that sense, it's very important for, for an individual to continue lifelong learning, to have the thirst to learn. And even someone of his stature and his success at 73, he even still takes two weeks every year to attend schools. So uh, wow. he's attended classes in Kellogg. He's, he loves attending classes in Harvard. Sometimes he will be a guest speaker as well and teach, but he, he loves learning. And I think this is what uh, that has brought him so far in the last 55 years of his business. Yeah. And along with your siblings, you guys have been brought up, educated in the West at Penn and, and whatnot. How do you, you in particular, if you guys see things differently, how do you reconcile your views? From the sibling group or from uh, uh, the generation one and generation two? For the generational point of view, yeah, you and your parents' generation. What I really appreciate, actually, in our family business conversations is that my father likes diversity in views. Actually, he, he's concerned when everyone thinks the same way. Because then we must be missing something. So in that sense, um, we were brought up, uh, I mean, we spent a significant amount of time in Indonesia and then Singapore, and then we spent most of our university in the U.S. That brings a different perspective to the way we look at things, which is, which is positive. Because when you have diversity in views, it's when good decisions can be made. So uh, we encourage, at least in business conversations, First, so we don't we normally don't make decisions only in the family members because we have professionals also together with us. So we actually bringing uh, really professionals and executive family members together to make good decisions. That's number one. Number two, we we appreciate and respect diversity in views because that's how you make good decisions. And last but not least, I think um, part and parcel to be successful in business families is that you must be able to be comfortable with opposing views. I wouldn't say conflict resolution, but I think it's important to be able to make good decisions together and be able to use the strength of the different views and arrive at a good decision. So I think that's something that we do relatively well. I think so far that is part and parcel of why our family business has also been successful. To me, on the topic of sustainability, just to share, I guess, tips of sustainability is that you must first try doing it. Failing should not discourage you from attempting to be more sustainable or, or executing sustainability projects. Because in the process of some of those challenges and failures, 
uh, that's when you learn the most actually for sustainability. So uh, business leaders out there, business owners or senior executives, I think the journey on sustainability is, is absolutely critical. Uh, but they should not be afraid to take the first step because not doing anything is even worse. I think attempting changes in the business or changes in the organization to be more sustainable and then course correcting after every few years as you learn more about how to do it correctly is better than not doing anything at all. So um, this is what I've learned in the last uh, seven, eight years of our journey. If everyone does their part, I'm confident that we can tackle this climate change issue. Um, so I'm actually more optimistic than pessimistic. When you say, Esther, that people have different perspective on uh, the storm or the climate change seriousness, if I look at the two COPs in 2015 versus the COP26 last I attended a few months ago, is that COP21 Paris was a discussion amongst elites, business leaders, and only G2G governments. But COP26, I feel like it's a discussion not only amongst government and policymakers, but also a lot more businesses and a lot more community and the population at large. So the awareness of this issue and sustainability is, is immense. The key is not to pit sustainability against jobs. I think that's where some people in various countries, including America, felt that or feels that why are you prioritizing sustainability and making us lose our jobs? Ultimately, it's not about people not believing in climate change, but it's because you're pitting short-term interests with medium to long-term challenges. Uh, that's when people will start not believing what's going to happen in, in medium to long-term. So the key is, as I said, equitable and just transition is absolutely critical. That's the key to make our journey to tackle climate change truly sustainable so that we don't take one step forward and two steps back. Yeah, that's really key. Don't pit one important factor against another and don't let failure be the reason that you don't do anything at all. That's it. <laughs> well summarized. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Anderson Tanoto, for sharing your journey of bringing sustainability to your family business with integrity, creativity, and perseverance. And thank you, dear listeners, for tuning into this encore episode for Family in Business, a podcast sponsored by the John L. Ward Center for Family Enterprises at the Kellogg School of Management. Stay tuned yet for season three of Family in Business coming up in the next few weeks because the theme will be on entrepreneurship within the family enterprises.